0: As Dan said earlier on, this is the culmination of a week of one big question. Uh, We've been running meetings at Birkdale School over the course of the week, answering questions which have been asked by uh, people across Sheffield um, in a survey that has been done by a dozen churches. Um, What is the one question that you would ask God if you knew it was going to be answered? And today is the number one question, the most popular question which people would like God to answer. And uh, it's not surprising that we're looking at this topic. It's a question that I've heard many people ask, um, and I'm sure you have too. Why is there so much sadness in this world? It's a good question. It's a very good question. It raises a lot of big questions about God. And uh, this is one question, why is there so much sadness in the world, Um, it sums up a number of other questions that were asked obviously when people uh, answered the survey they didn't all just put that wording Uh, it was a culmination an amalgamation really of the questions which have been asked it was one specific question that was asked but another of others very similar and uh, we're just going to show a short dvd now of uh, showing some of those other questions which were very similar and which we'll speak into as well today just have a look at this at those questions up there, we can see that although this might be a philosophical question for some, an intellectual question, actually for many it's not, for most of us maybe it's not, these questions touch all of our lives, sometimes in a very real and very personal and very painful way and no doubt sitting here amongst us there'll be many who are struggling with sadness or suffering or pain or some kind of things which link in with those issues which we've just seen. We may be affected throughout our whole life by things, events that have happened in our childhood, or we may suddenly get affected by something like redundancy or illness or bereavement. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking at a church down in Hampshire, and uh, A lady came to speak to me afterwards, and she told me that she'd come back to England with her four children from New Zealand, where she'd moved out with her family. Her husband was still out there, and they moved to Christchurch in New Zealand, and their home had been totally destroyed by an earthquake which happened out there in New Zealand, and everything had been taken. She'd had to come back to England. She'd had to leave her husband out there to try and rebuild her life. She had some big questions, big questions to ask me about God. And some of them we don't even have time to touch on today. I mean, even if we've not been affected personally by sadness or suffering in our lives, we've only got to watch the news on TV to realize that the world does indeed seem to be a mad world. Only today you just flick on the news, crash on the motorway, the M5, Seven people dead, many more injured, 30-odd cars involved. What's going on? Why? Why doesn't God stop it? Many, many questions which get asked. Good questions, real questions, heartfelt questions. It's not surprising, really, that so many people end up concluding that there can't be a God, can there? How can there be a God who allows this? Or if there is a God then it's not a God that they would want to worship. I mean, their thinking makes some sense. It goes something like this. When we look at all the sadness and suffering in the world, it just doesn't seem as though God is real. It just doesn't seem as though God cares. Or if there is a God, he can't be good, can he? Or he can't be powerful. I mean, maybe he's one and not the other, but he can't be both can't be a good God and a powerful God. I mean, maybe maybe he wants to stop the suffering in the world, but he can't do it. He's just not powerful enough. Maybe he is powerful, but he just doesn't want to. Either way, why should I worship him? Why do I want to know about this God? I've heard a number of people express such sentiments, and I understand where they're coming from. Because it's understandable. And in the end, it doesn't help. In the end, even rejecting God or saying there can't be a God, or if there is a God, I'm not going to believe him. Actually, that doesn't help people, does it, in their sadness and suffering? Because the problem is still there. The problem is we're still living in this world, which is a world full of heartache, full of real agonies of pain. And it becomes... Increasingly obvious to people, well, what does bring us hope? What hope is there? Who can help? Can governments help? No. Can, can just trying our best, let's all pull together, let's make a better world? That doesn't work either. What answers are there? Many people do just despair. But I believe, having understood all of that, I truly believe that there is a God who is all-loving and who is all-powerful and has got something to say about the problems of sadness and suffering in the world. And for the rest of my time this morning, I want to look at what the Bible says about this. We've asked the question, what does God say? Well, I guess the best we can do... Is say what the Bible says, and we believe this is the Word of God. We believe this is God speaking to us directly through His Word, through what people wrote because it was inspired by them. Um, in other words, we know God's thoughts. We can know God's motives. We can know God's plans for our life by reading this book. Now maybe you're skeptical about that and this morning I haven't got time to go into why the Bible is reliable, how we, why we can trust the Bible. But if you're interested, um, that may be something that you want to follow up with us. Uh, we're running a, a course, I might say a little bit more about that soon, uh, later on this morning, but we're running a course over the next few Thursdays uh, here, from starting this Thursday. We can look into some of these issues in a little bit more depth we can't cover it all this morning. But I want to just take it uh, and see what the Bible says, what God says about this. And I believe God says a lot. First of all, the Bible tells us that, that fighting and abuse and wars and earthquakes and tsunamis and suffering and sadness and death, they were never part of God's original plan for us. In other words... Life shouldn't be like this. Life shouldn't be like this. We all know that anyway, don't we, I guess? In deep inside us, in our gut feeling, we know that this isn't what life should be about. Oh yeah, I mean, we, we get scientists, we get people who try and explain it away. We get the evolutionary um, philosophers and theorists who say, well, you know, it, it all came about by chance, and it's really about the fittest surviving. It's like we see in the the animal kingdom, uh, the the, the fittest survive, the ones who are the strongest, they'll survive and they'll develop, the weakest will die. And that's all part of the way it's meant to be. But we know that that's not the case. We know that when the weak and the frail and the vulnerable die, that it's not just, oh, well, that's okay, that's what's meant to happen. See, deep down inside, we know that's not meant to happen. That's not right. There's something that goes deeply against that inside us. And that's because God has put that inside us, that thought, that feeling inside us. Actually, even when people are old and they die, even if they've had a good life, as people say, there's still such pain. There's still grief. There's still that feeling, this isn't the way it was meant to be. And the Bible spells that out. The Bible tells us in the early chapters of Genesis how God created the world and everything in it. And it was good. And it was harmonious. And there was no pain. And there was no suffering. And there was no death. Right from the start in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 um, and many people get hung up on the details of the story and they, and they start saying, well, oh, come on, you can't expect us to believe that, uh, creating the world in, in six days? Are you expecting me to believe in a literal six days and, and uh, are you expecting us to believe in this? There was literally people called Adam and Eve and, and it's okay to ask those questions and I believe there are answers to those questions, but actually, let's not miss the main point. Let's not miss the main point of what those chapters in Genesis are telling us. They're telling us what life was supposed to be like. They're telling us something about God. They're telling us something about who we are meant to be. And they're also telling us about, as we go on, as you go on in the early chapters of Genesis, they go on and they tell us about what li- why life, why life is like it is now. God's intention was that we should live in harmony with each other and in harmony with creation and in harmony with God himself and in all of this to live without shame. Genesis 2.25 describes the situation and it says, the man and his wife, they were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. And what changed everything was when people used the free choice that God had given them. And and we'll come back to that later. But he used the free choice that God had given them to sin, to disobey God, to go against God. You probably know the story in Genesis 3, the story of how God tells them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they do. They do ultimately, because they were tempted, but ultimately... Because they wanted to be like God. And it's that rebellion against God that brought them shame. So they covered up, they hid. By the time we get to Genesis 3:10, they're hiding in the garden, among the trees when the Lord God called to them, and he says to them, "Where are you?" And the man answers, "I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and so I hid." Shame. Shame has come into the world because of the rebellion against God. And so they're hiding. They're hiding from God. And what that is telling us is that humankind has been rebelling against God ever since in shame. Throughout the ages, we've had that desire to be like God's. We really don't want to submit to God's way. We don't want to go with what God's plan is for our life. We don't want to worship him. And right from the start, when we start rebelling like that, when we start turning away from God and we start doing things for our own selfish motives and our own benefit, then there are consequences to this rebellion. And in Genesis, we read that Adam and Eve, they were driven out from this garden, from this paradise which they'd been given by God. And how pain comes into the world. We read about it in Genesis, in Genesis 3. Pain comes through childbirth to the, to the woman. Pain comes and hardship comes through working the ground. No longer is it easy, as it should have been, to work the ground, to see fruit and vegetation and, and food come from the ground now. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be back-breaking work. And in the end, people will die. At the end, they will live their life and they will die and they will return to the earth. And that's the way that we see the world today. And you might say, I just don't believe it. Adam and Eve, what's all that about? I just don't it. It's a fairy story. But like I've said, these early chapters primarily are intended and written to set out what God intended the world to be like, how it should be, actually what we agree with, that what life is like now is not the way it's supposed to be. And it starts to say, and this is how it got there. This is how it got there. What the Bible's really saying is that pain and suffering and sadness are primarily caused by people's desires to live the life that they want to live for their own selfish motives, for their own selfish gain. And they want nothing to do with God. And that doesn't happen just in the past. That happens today. And we see it on a personal level, and we see it on, in our society, in our communities that we live in, and we see it in our nation, and we see it in, in our governments, and the decisions that countries make to do with other countries and the wars that they fight over land and over money and over wealth and whatever it might be. It's all to do with getting what we can get for ourselves. And most of the sadness in the world is caused by that. Most of the, of the, of, of the suffering in the world is caused by that. The Bible calls it sin. And we can see it's true. We can look and say, well, does the world match up with that? Well, yeah, it does. It does. When we look and see, well, what causes this sadness in the world? What causes wars and and rape and abuse and conflicts between people and relationship breakdown and, and traffic accidents? and financial ruin. It all comes from people's desire to get what they want, whether they're driving too fast on the motorway because they want to get somewhere as fast as they can get, and they're not considering the weather conditions or, or, the, or, the, or the other people on the road, uh, or whether it comes from people saying, well, I want this for myself, um, and, and, and they're, they've got, they're full of hatred and, and lies and lust and jealousy and a desire for revenge and uh, greed and selfishness. And it's there in people. And in amongst that, people live with this constant sense of shame, hidden shame, hidden shame about themselves. And and much of the suffering and sadness in the world comes from that. And you might say, well, it, it doesn't all, though. It doesn't all. What about natural disasters? What about natural disasters and, and and things like that, tsunamis, earthquakes? Well actually, Romans eight and and, and if you if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Romans eight. Some of the words will appear on the screen. I'm just going to refer to one or two verses. But if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Romans, because we'll we'll stay in Romans a little bit um, to look at a few verses. But Romans eight talks about how the world has got to be like it is the physical world, things like earthquakes and, and uh, hurricanes and other things like that. And it says in Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says, uh, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. He gives a bit of a hope for the future. And then he says, The creation waits in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed, for what God is bringing about in the future. For the creation was suffered to fris- subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In other words, creation is, is in bondage too, to decay. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. In other words, sin has affected creation as well. It's not just affected human beings, it's actually affected the creation that God made. And it's groaning. It's like in childbirth, it's in decay, things are wearing out. Obviously, it's also being affected by, by other people, whether it's, whether it's chopping down the rainforests and affecting and causing flooding, or uh, there was a thing in, uh, about an earthquake that was happening in, in Lancashire, I think, this week, and they said it was caused by people drilling down uh, to get some natural gas out and caused an earthquake. But of course, but other than that, creation's in bondage, it's in decay, but it's waiting. It's like in pains of childbirth, there's something better coming. And there's a promise there in the Bible, and the promise all the way through the Bible, even from Genesis, it's Genesis something better is coming. But this is how it is now. And the truth is, we just continue living that way. You know, governments make decisions which damage the environment, wars are fought over land. People hurt them, others because it brings them pleasure or it brings them benefit. Even those of us who could honestly say, well, we'd never hurt people. They'd struggle to say, we'd all struggle to say that we've never caused anyone any pain or suffering. Right from birth, we have selfish motives. Just You only need to look at children and babies to see that they are after their self-seeking. Their self is the most important thing, and it carries on like that. And as we get to adulthood, we learn to hide it better, and we keep it down, but it's still there. Every, even the good that we do can be from a selfish motive. There's a guy called Dan uh, Hammerskjold, the Secretary General of the UN from 1953 to 1961. And he was described by people as a great, good, and lovable man. But he put in his own autobiography, he talks about the dark counter-center of evil in our nature. So that even when we serve others it becomes the foundation of our own life-preserving self-esteem. What he's saying is, even when we do good to others, actually, we often do it to feel better about ourselves, to feel that we're we're good, really, to try and deal with that sense of shame that we have in ourselves because we know that deep down inside, it's not all right. The author G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote a letter to the, to the Times. And the Times was having a debate about what is wrong with the world. And he wrote a letter in. There was many other people saying what's wrong with the world today. He wrote in and he just simply said, Dear Sir, I am. He'd realized that the problem with the world lay deep inside our own hearts. And when we honestly face up to what we're like inside, and we don't like to do this, we don't like to do this. But in those rare moments when we are honest with ourselves, and we would never dream of saying it to other people, we're actually appalled at ourselves. We're appalled at our potential for doing evil. And that's what the Bible calls our sinful nature. And we can so often delude ourselves. Most of the time we delude ourselves into thinking that we're better people than we are. Before I got married, I honestly thought I would be a really good husband. I honestly thought, you know, whoever marries me is going is, is to really be, you know, do well for themselves. <laughs> I did. I mean, there's arrogance and pride and everything there. But I genuinely thought, I'm all right. I'd make a good husband. When I got married, I quickly became appalled at some of the things that I did and said, especially early on. Seriously did. I couldn't believe it. You know, no one would want their hidden thoughts and motives shown. If I, had the, if I, if I said this, this disc, this CD, data disc, If I I told you that I'd somehow managed to get your thoughts, your motives, your actions for your entire life, everything, everything you've done, everything you've thought, the reasons why you've really done things, if I said it's all on here, I could just wander over here and say, Mike, just put it in, put it on the screen, not one of us would feel comfortable. Not one of us would say, I think I'll be all right with that. I think I'll come out okay. We know we wouldn't. We know we wouldn't. And it's hidden. It's hidden inside ourselves. But God sees. But other than that, it's hidden. And it will stay hidden. But but that is at the root of it. And the Bible just seems to kind of If we read the Bible, it kind of slaps us around the face with the truth that despite our best intentions, we we can't do anything else. We can't change because this sin and rebellion lives in us. Listen to what Paul says again in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do isn't the good that I want to do. No, the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who does it. It's sin living in me that does it. In other words, we have the desire to be better people. The same way that we have a desire to have a better world. We don't want to be the people that we, when we look at ourselves, we realize we are. And so we try to be better, and whether it's New Year's resolutions or whatever, just trying our best. We try. I'm not going to hurt you again. You know, people who hurt and abuse people often they are they are racked with guilt about it, and they say, "I'm never going to do it again," and they mean it. But they do. And they don't want to. And and Paul says, it's the sinful nature in us. It's what is in us. We're born with it. We're born that way. It's not that I can look around and go, you and you and you are the worst. No, we're all in the same boat together. And that's why the world is as it is. Because however much we cover it up, it comes out and it affects things and it affects people and it affects the world. So that's where we are. I mean, that's the first thing. That's why... The world's like it is, and it's not how it's meant to be. But that doesn't answer the questions we had before, does it? That doesn't say, well, what, what's God going to do about it? Is there a God? Can He do something about it? Why doesn't He do something about it? Why does He seem not to be able to? Can't He stop us making those selfish and sinful choices? He's God! We can't do anything about it, but why doesn't he stop us hurting people? Why doesn't he just make us love him? Why doesn't he make us not rebel against other people? Well, you can't really make someone love you, can you? I mean, God's greatest desire is that we love him. That's what he created us for, to love him, to love each other. That's what the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave were. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second one, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love other people the same way that you love yourself, with the same motives to seek their good the same way that you do your own. He says, It's all right giving those two commandments, Jesus, but we can't do it. We can't do it. But God can't make us. Otherwise, we'd just be—we wouldn't be human. We wouldn't be people. Actually, if you—if I—if I bought my wife some flowers, if I went home, she's not here this morning. Um, but if if I went home, and on the way home I thought, I know, I'll 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 get some flowers. So I took her some flowers, and I I, I came in, and she said, "Oh, that's that's lovely. That's that's really loving of you." If if I said I had to do it, I had no choice. I was made to do it by God. God made me do it. Or someone else made me do it. You know, whether it was God or whatever else. Someone, maybe one of you, you know, put me at gunpoint. Right, you've got to go and buy yourself. Right, I'm made to do it. Does that mean the same? Is that the same expression of love? No. You've been made to do it. You didn't have a choice. Actually, the fact that we can choose not to love, the fact that we can choose to love and not to love, means that when we do love, that has far more meaning. There's far more about that. It's just genuine. In fact, love loses its meaning if we have no choice, if it's forced. And God has given us the freedom to love or not to love. The freedom to love him and the freedom not to love him. And right from the very beginning, humans have chosen not to follow God's way, not to love him. And we keep on making those choices. So what's the way out? What is the way out? Well, Romans 7 continues and in verse 24, Paul summarizes his predicament and he says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? And that might be our cry as well if we realize our our true state. Who? What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me? And then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the way out. The Bible tells us that God has acted. God isn't impotent. God isn't just sitting there watching and going, I told you it'd all be like this. Why did you do it in the first place? God has acted. That is why Jesus, God himself, the son of God, came to live among us. The Bible tells us that he lived a perfect life. He never acted with the self-centered motives that we do. He was the only one who's never done that. He was the only one who's lived a perfect life. And then at 33 years old, he died on a Roman cross accused of blasphemy, accused of claiming to be God. Well, he was God. And this was no failure. This was no plan gone wrong. This was God's plan. In Romans earlier on, in Romans 5... And verse 6, Paul says, you see, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. There was a reason behind it. He died at the right time for the ungodly, those who have turned away from God. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, Someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, change your ways, become good, and then you'll be worth dying for. While we were still rebelling against God, still hating God, he sent his son To die for us. So, what did he do? Why? What was that about? What did he do? Well, he reconciled us to God. See, we were were God's enemies. You don't have to watch too many movies to see that in the end, enemies always get their comeuppance, they always get what they deserve. And that's what we were heading for. In fact, we still are outside of Christ. We are still heading for, for the comeuppance for our attitude. We will still reap the results of our rebellion against God and our self centeredness. The Bible says there will be a day when all our hearts are judged, when every secret, every secret will be laid bare. And we will be rewarded for what we have done. That. And we'll be rewarded for the good and pure motives and we'll be punished for the rebellion. And that is what we have to look forward to outside of Christ. But, but, and there's a big but, thanks be to God, we don't have to be. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. What that means is we can be declared right before God. God will look at us and say, you're right before me. You're okay. I'm not seeing that sin anymore. I'm not seeing that heart. In other words, Jesus has transferred his perfection, his goodness, onto us. It's like he's clothed us with it. And God only sees what we're clothed in. We can be reconciled with God. We can live a right relationship with God again. And then we are given power to change. Then no longer are we saying we can't help it. We can't do anything. It's, we're sinful. We, we try and do good, but we can't do otherwise. No. Then we can change. Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? This is to people who, who've come to know God. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? No, by no means. We died to that. We died to sin How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know, those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, they were baptized into his death and therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. There's a new life that we can live. We don't have to be stuck in this old way of life. We don't have to be stuck as we were, battling, trying our best secretly being ashamed of what we really like. We've died to it. We can die to that. Many of us here know that because they have died to it, because they've accepted what Jesus has done. They've accepted the forgiveness that can come through Jesus, the reconciliation, the making good, the making right, setting us towards a path where God is putting the whole thing right, because at the moment, God is still at work. And we'll come on to that just in a very few minutes. If you don't know that making right, you can do. You can know that this morning. All you have to do is accept the state of your heart, the condition of your heart, and say, yeah, I agree. I agree with G.K. Chesterton. I'm the problem, actually. Or me and... Everyone else and accept that Jesus' death was God's way of doing something about that. Not by making us do better or saying, Come on, but by sending His Son to change us. Now, as I finish, you may still be struggling with the feeling that God just doesn't understand still. How can God understand the pain and suffering that, that I am going through? Well, someone wrote a a little playlet called The Long Silence, and they say this. It's like an imaginary situation. They say this, at the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How does he know about suffering, snapped a young brunette. She ripped open her sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a young man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes said, Why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where it was all sweetness and light, where there was no weeping and fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. And so each each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he'd suffered the most. A Jew, a young black man, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they'd endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live life on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think he's out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing his sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. The world is full of real pain. But we are not alone in that pain. When we suffer, God suffers with us. He has already suffered with us. And finally, how will this help deal with the sadness in the world? It helps because we have a promise in the Bible that actually there is a new world coming when Jesus returns The old, this earth will pass away and a new heaven and a new earth will come about, which will be populated by God and populated by those people who have received this righteousness of Christ, who've had their hearts changed, those who've stopped rebelling against God, those who've had their shame taken away. It's described right at the end of the Bible. We see the problem right at the start. This New heaven, new earth is described right at the end in a vision seen by the Apostle John. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is the promise. That will be when God makes everything new. He's already started it. He's already sent his son Jesus. He's already changing those of us who choose to accept their sinfulness and their wrongness and say, God, you're the only one who can sort this out. And he's changing people and that is his church, his people, his bride it's called here. But God will return and he will finish the job and he will make a new heaven and a new earth and it will be as it was meant to be in the beginning, where there is perfect harmony between us and God and no shame and no pain and no suffering. That is what is going to happen. That is our promise we can look forward to. And what about now? What about the earth we have now? Yeah, we do do have to suffer. We, We will face pain and sadness and suffering. But we've already seen... But Paul said, This is just momentary. It's just momentary. Be encouraged. Keep going. Because a new day is coming. And we can even see signs today of God breaking in. You know, God does move amongst us, God does heal the sick today. He does. He mends broken hearts today. He restores people's mental state. He brings comfort. These are real signs today that God gives us, pointing to the truth of his word. He doesn't just say it. He demonstrates it. You know, we'd love to pray with you if you're struggling with today. We'd love to pray with you if you're sick today. We'd love to pray with you if you're in mental turmoil. Most of all, we'd love to pray with you if you want to know God yourself if you want to turn away from the life which you can't do yourself you, and say, I, I actually believe only God can do it, I believe now it's only through Jesus' death that I can, I can change, that I can love God, that I can love other people the way that I love myself. If you want to do that, we, we'd love to pray with you and you can know that today. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again, and we have the offer today of a new life in Christ. All we have to do, as I've said, is accept what G.K. Chesterton accepted, that what's wrong with the world is me. And we can turn away from living our lives with us at the center, and once we're forgiven, we can start living our lives with God as the center. And we can be encouraged and confident that God will eventually restore all things and wipe away every tear. Let's just pray. Father God, we know that this question that we're faced with today is a very real question. It's a question that is real to us because we all struggle with it, Lord, and I thank you, God, that you can identify with us, that you're not a distant God, that you're a God who, through the person of Jesus Christ, has experienced all of these things and more and has experienced a rejection from the Father and has experienced the punishment that actually we deserve. Father, I thank you that we can come to you today knowing that in and of ourselves, we can do nothing. We're not coming to you with any self-confidence or any self-righteousness. We're coming knowing that actually our hearts are, are steeped in evil outside of you. And God, we want you to change us. Lord, I thank you for those of us who have known your forgiveness. We thank you again for what you have rescued us from, how you've changed us. Lord, I want to pray for those who've not known that yet. God, I want to pray you will reveal yourself to them today. You will change their hearts, Lord, so that they come to you willingly, not forced, but willingly, and say, I want to know this God. I see now that this God isn't a God who doesn't care, but a God who cares supremely and wants to change my life and wants to change this world. Will you come today, Lord? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship, and then it'd be good to just spend a few minutes responding. Maybe if you want prayer uh, for healing, we can pray for you. Um, Maybe if you want to know God, we can pray for you as well. But let's just worship God uh, just before we finally finish.
1: Came sin, who knew no sin.